notice that the, the headings for the sermon are uh, on the sheet tonight. I've, I've never done this before, so I'm, you know, give me a couple of years and it'll be PowerPoint. <laughs> okay, so watch this space. But um, hopefully you'll find it useful to have those, uh, those headings in, in front of you. We're going to be looking in uh, 1 Peter and chapter 3 this evening, continuing from where we left off whenever it was, last springtime, I think. I wonder, um, what do people think of when they hear the, the term the good life? Uh, those of you, you know, those who are really young probably won't think of the, uh, the 1970s TV comedy, but I guess most of us here do. That's what springs to, to mind, isn't it? But um, apart from that, uh, you probably think in terms of a life of ease, a life of comfort, maybe even a life of, of luxury, uh, living the good life. Well, in the passage that we're going to look at this evening, we'll be seeing something of what Peter's idea of the good life was. And before we look at that, just remind ourselves of the context. Um, in, in chapter 3, verse 8, Peter said, Finally, all of you have unity of mind sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. Uh, And we saw that he was there addressing the whole Christian community and describing how we are to relate to one another uh, in our life together as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Following on from that, the last time we were looking at one piece we uh, moved on to look at verse 9 of, of the chapter, where Peter said, Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. And there, having spoken about how believers in Christ are to relate to one another uh, 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 within the, the, the Christian community, he went on to talk about how we're to respond to the, the hostility that will come our way uh, from those outside the Christian community. And that response is to be determined by the fact that we've been called to live Christ-like lives here and now and uh, uh, and and uh, and the fact that we're to look beyond the sufferings of this life, because we've also been called to an inheritance uh, in the future. We've been called to an eternal uh, future blessing. The point was that the way you live and what you do doesn't earn you any future blessing. But if you really have been called to inherit a future eternal blessing, that will inevitably affect the way you live and what you do. Now as we move on, we find that Peter went on to underpin what he'd been saying by referring to Psalm 34. In fact, throughout the letter, um, he's quite often made allusions to Psalm 34. Um, Back in chapter 2, verse 3, when he said, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Well, you, you have noticed that as we had the, uh, had the reading from Psalm 34. Peter was alluding back to the psalm 
uh, when he said that, why did he lean on Psalm 34 so heavily? Well, I think it's because Psalm 34 um, was a, a psalm of, of deliverance. In that psalm, David was giving thanks to God for delivering him uh, from his dangerous sojourn among the Philistines when he was on the run from the wrath of King Saul. And Peter's logic was very much that just as God had delivered David, so he would eventually uh, deliver Peter's readers uh, and all believers in Christ from the trials and the dangers of their sojourn here on earth. We all look forward to that eternal deliverance. Now in uh, verses 10 to 12 of, of 1 Peter chapter 3, those are the verses we're looking at this evening, uh, we see there that David, uh, Peter quotes from Psalm 34, um, verses 12 to 16. Uh, and he says, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now you notice that Peter precedes that quote by saying for. So, so that shows that he's quoting those verses as a basis for what he's just been saying. So we'll look at, uh, at these verses uh, under, under three headings. Uh, in them we see an aspiration, uh, an obligation, and a motivation. So firstly, let's uh, see the, the aspiration. We see this uh, mentioned at the beginning of verse 10. Uh, it's indicated by the words, whoever desires, or the NIV has whoever would. It's an aspiration, and an aspiration is a, a goal, or a hope, or an aim, uh, or, or a desire, isn't it? It's what you wish for. Now I wonder, what is your aspiration? To, to what do you aspire? I guess many would aspire to the good life, wouldn't they? That That's what they want, perhaps a long life, or good health, or... Home comfort, successful children, contentment, a good reputation. And none of those are, are bad things, are they? But none of them are the aspiration that's mentioned here uh, in verse 10. Uh, we see that the aspiration is expressed as to love life and see good days. That's the aspiration that, that David referred to in Psalm 34 and Peter's quoting it now in his letter. But what did that mean? Um, superficially, it could sound very much like a desire for the good life, couldn't it? It sounds like a desire for a life of ease in which everything in the garden is rosy. And yet Peter quoted that in his letter, even though throughout the letter he'd been making it very clear that believers in Christ are are sojourners and, and strangers in this world. Uh, 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 and this present earthly life is one in which we can expect opposition. 
we can expect hardship, trials, suffering. That doesn't sound much like loving life and seeing good days, does it? It seems a far cry from from the good life. So when, when Peter's been talking about us being sojourners and strangers and facing suffering and all the rest of it, was he just being a bit of a puddle glum? Was he being a bit of an, an Eeyore? You know, we, we haven't had an earthquake recently. <laughs> was that was that what Peter was was like? Was he just a person who, you know, was a glass half full kind of guy rather than a half half full, no, half empty? Oh, you know what I mean. I... <laughs> now you see, but that that wasn't the case at all. Peter was being realistic and you look even in the context of Psalm 34 itself uh, we see that that was very much the case the same thing was being expressed Uh, if you look at verses 19 to 22 in Psalm 34 uh, David said there many are the afflictions of the righteous but the Lord delivers him out of them all he keeps all his bones not one of them is broken affliction will slay the wicked And those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. And you see, David said, many are the the afflictions of the righteous. Well, that's what Peter's been saying throughout the whole of the letter, isn't it? Time and time again, he's been been emphasising that. So if believers in Christ are to aspire to the good life, in which everything in the garden is rosy, will be disappointed. This life offers afflictions. So we're not to aspire for the good life uh, in this life. We're to expect many afflictions. But you see, look at what David went on to say. Uh, He said, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. You see, there are afflictions for believers in Christ, but the Lord delivers. He delivers us from them. That's very much in contrast with what David, uh, what David went on to say, because he said, um, "Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned." You see, the point is that whether you're righteous or wicked, whether you are a believer in Christ or not, there will be afflictions in this life. That, that's, that's the nature of life in this fallen world. The, the difference between the righteous and the wicked, the difference between the believer in Christ and the unbeliever, doesn't lie in whether or not they're afflicted. They'll all be afflicted. The difference lies in the outcome of those afflictions. It lies in in what results from the afflictions that come their way. You see, the righteous will be delivered, but the wicked will be condemned. There's no hope for the wicked, but the righteous are confident of being delivered. Uh, and so they have a sure hope. But what does that deliverance from afflictions look like? Well, you see, David continues by saying, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. 
So you see, to love life and see good days, it's not referring to a life of ease on earth. No, it's referring to a redeemed life. It's referring to a life that results in not being condemned. And that's what you most need to aspire to. Knowing that you're redeemed, knowing that you're not condemned. And how can that aspiration be realised? Well, David said that none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. That means none of those who take refuge in the Lord will be condemned. You, You achieve the aspiration to love life and see good days by taking refuge in the Lord. Or as Paul puts it in Romans 8, uh, verse 1, and Wesley picked up on it in And Can It Be? There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's by faith in Christ that you're redeemed and delivered from condemnation and receive the, uh, the hope of an eternal inheritance that, again, Peter's emphasised repeatedly throughout the letter. That those have been constant themes, haven't they? You're, you're sojourners now, you're, you'll suffer, life's going to be hard. But there is that sure and certain hope of an eternal inheritance. So when Peter quotes uh, the aspiration to love life and see good days, he's speaking of being made right with God and so having a sure hope for eternity. Well, is that your aspiration? Is that your number one priority? Is that what means most to you, more than anything else? It should do, because anything else is is trivial in comparison, isn't it? We're talking about eternity here, not anything that this life can offer, not anything that's confined to, to, confined to, to, to this world and this age in which we live. Well, the next thing to see from Peter's quotation from uh, Psalm 34 is that this aspiration is followed by an obligation. Now, we see that as we continue in uh, verse 10 and into verse 11. Uh, He says, Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. So, in actual fact, I've said an obligation, but really it's a, it's a threefold obligation that we're being, being given there, isn't it? Did you notice uh, that the, 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 that term, let him, is used three times? That, that speaks of a, an obligation. Um, the NIV presents it as they must, which is perhaps even more, more emphatic, isn't it? You see, if a person has been born again and come to faith in Christ so that they're redeemed and delivered from condemnation and receive that hope of an eternal inheritance, it must follow that they will be characterised by certain things. Of necessity, these things will be true. Now, it's very important uh, that we don't get the impression that this is saying that doing these things will cause you to love life and see good days. It's not saying, do these things and so fulfil that aspiration. It's not saying that at all. 
It's not saying that doing these things will earn your deliverance from condemnation and make you deserve eternal life. Uh, as we've seen previously in, in Peter, salvation is by God's grace through faith in Christ alone. Uh, but we've also seen that such saving faith always leads to a, a, a holy, Christ-like life. Now, with the uh, 500th anniversary of the, the beginning of the Reformation, we've been quoting Martin Luther a lot lately, so this is my Martin Luther quote uh, that, that's of relevance to, to this point. Luther said, We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. And what he meant by that is although we are saved through faith alone, such faith, if it's, if it's genuine, saving faith, is never alone because it always leads to practical consequences in our lives. It's what James said, isn't it? Faith without works is dead. And what he meant by that is, if, if the faith that you profess to have doesn't result in works then it's not genuine faith. It's not living faith. It's dead. It's worthless. You might as well not have it. So the, this quotation from uh, Psalm 34 isn't saying that you must do these things in order to love life and see good days. Rather, it's saying that if you truly love life and see good days, it must result in you doing these things. So what are the three obligations that Peter quotes from Psalm 34, well, they're really in connection uh, with, with speech, with actions, and relationships. See the first one there in verse 10, where we read, Let him keep his tongue from evil, and his lips from speaking deceit. This obligation concerns speech, doesn't it? This is what Peter must have had in mind when back in verse 9 he said, Do not repay reviling for reviling. Yeah, he, he based that on, 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 on Psalm 34. It's clearly to do with speech. It's to do with controlling the use of the tongue so that it's used for that which is good, that which is true, that which is wholesome and, and helpful. Um, that must be a consequence of having new life in Christ. Now, I mean, superficially, keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit might not sound too much to ask. It would be very easy to gloss over it as simply meaning to mind your P's and Q's. But the reality is that it's a much uh, harder ask than that. It's a much taller order. Um, look at what James had to say about the human tongue in James chapter 3 verses 6 to 9 he said and the tongue is a fire a world of unrighteousness the tongue is set among our members staining the whole body setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell for every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and curse, uh, and with it we curse people 
who are made in the likeness of God. You see there what what strong words James applied to the human tongue. He, he describes it as a world of unrighteousness, a restless evil, uh, full of deadly poison. Uh, and what's more, he says that no human being can tame the tongue. So when Peter quotes Psalm 34 uh, to require us to control our tongue so as to keep the tongue from evil and keep our lips from speaking deceit, is he asking the impossible? James has said no one can control their tongue, and yet that's what we're to do. James said no human being can tame the tongue. Well, look at what James went on to say in verses 10 to 12. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers. These things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Fresh water. If you like, like Peter, he says these things ought not to be so. And why is that? Well, he says, does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Those are rhetorical questions. And and the, the required answer is obviously no. No, they can't. And the point is that if we have new life in Christ, if we have a new nature brought about by the power of the Holy Spirit, we will speak in a way that is consistent with that new nature that we have. So we will be able to tame our tongues. No human being in their own strength has the ability to control their tongues. It's just as James explained it, that the the tongue is a powerful thing and it's a a force for, for great damage and harm. And people left to their own devices can't control it. But if we're in Christ, if we have a new nature, then that will be reflected in the way in which we speak and in the way in which we use our tongues. We will be able to keep our tongue from evil and keep our lips from speaking deceit. So the first obligation that arises if you truly love life and see good days is to control your tongue and use it in keeping with your new life in Christ. Then we see the second obligation at the beginning of uh, verse 11. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Now this is clearly what Peter had in mind back in verse 9 when he said do not repay evil for evil. And this is to do with with actions, isn't it? Being born again doesn't only affect the way, affect what we say and the way we use our tongues, it affects what we do. It makes us turn away from evil. And that word turn, it really tells us that this isn't something that happens automatically, uh, as if by magic. It requires effort. It requires deliberate choice. You know, with our new natures in Christ, we have the ability, but it doesn't automatically happen. We, we have to work at it. We have to make sure that we, we work hard at turning away from evil and 
doing good. That's a choice that we would once not have made because we were dead in trespasses and sins. Our natural inclination, our, our bias, was always towards evil. But now that we're alive in Christ, we've been freed from that inclination, that, that, that bias. We've been set free from, from that. We have new desires and we can choose to turn away from evil uh, and, and to do good. If you notice, it doesn't only speak of a negative turning away. Um, the, the words that Peter quotes go on to say, and do good. So you see, our new nature leads us on to, if you like, go beyond just turning away from evil. It's turn away from evil and then positively do good. And that's something that we find emphasised uh, consistently uh, in the New Testament for believers in Christ, don't we? Uh, Romans 12, 9-21, Paul said, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. <coughs> For by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now that speaks of, of practical good actions, doesn't it? So to fail to give an enemy food and drink, well that's to be overcome by evil. To give an enemy food and drink, well that's to overcome evil with good. I look at 1 Thessalonians 5.15 uh, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Again, that's the, the emphasis, isn't it? Of going beyond merely not repaying evil for evil. We're to positively do good to one another that's within the body of Christ uh, and to everyone. Whether it's fellow believer or non-believer we are to do good. So the second obligation that arises if you truly love life and see good days is to ensure that your actions are in keeping with your new life in Christ. And then we see the third obligation uh, as uh, Peter continues in verse 11 uh, by saying, let him seek peace and pursue it. I think speaking of peace in this context, it's really to do with relationships, isn't it? You know, besides speaking and acting in, in a Christ-like way, we are to relate to others in a Christ-like way. And doing that really is very much dependent on fulfilling those first two obligations, isn't it? You know, speaking evil and deceit and repaying evil for evil is not a recipe for peaceful relationships, is it? Uh, controlling your tongue and doing good well that's the foundation on which uh, we can uh, build peaceful relationships that's our aim we're to seek peace we're to build peaceful relationships and once again it, it's something that's stressed repeatedly in the new testament uh, for instance romans 12 verse 18 paul says if possible so far as it depends on you Live peaceably with all. That's an exhortation to seek peace 
with everyone, isn't it? But of course, peace is dependent on on both parties, isn't it? I mean, it, it, you can't unilaterally declare peace. Uh, you, you can try it, but if the other person isn't for peace, you're going to get hammered. So it can't be unilaterally uh, declared. Uh, so you, you recognise that, but uh, Paul's realistic about that as well. You know, that's why he said, if possible, so far as it depends on you. So we have to recognise that in seeking peace, we're not guaranteed to achieve it. That there'll be times when when, when that can't be can't be done because of the the other person. But we're to seek peace. That's what we're exhorted to do. We might not succeed, but we are to seek it. And you notice that Peter's quote from from Psalm thirty four. Once again, it goes beyond merely seeking. It says, seek peace and pursue it. Now, pursuing is going beyond merely seeking. It's much more determined, much more determined than seeking. It's, it's a not giving up. It keeps on, even when there are failures, even when there are setbacks. Uh, the writer to Hebrews says in, in, in chapter 12, verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You see, strive, well, that speaks of working hard. It speaks of, of not giving up. So we're not to simply like the idea of, of peace and quietly hope it's going to happen. No, we're to pursue it. We're to strive for it. We're to seek peace in a a tenacious way. Well, why are we to be so determined in seeking peace? Well, remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, verse 9. He said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. You see, the promised blessing isn't simply a, a, an empty wanting peace, but it's, it lies in, in making peace. And as we've already seen, we won't always succeed in making peace. But that's to be our aim. So we're to pursue it and strive for it. So we've seen three obligations uh, in connection with with speech, actions and relationships. And I think it's very evident that there's nothing legalistic about these obligations. Um, Neither is there anything half-hearted about them. You know, there's a real emphasis, isn't there, on on efforts, on, on striving on working hard. The emphasis is on wholeheartedly going beyond the bare minimum. Back in in verse 9, Peter said, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but, on the contrary, bless. And you can think, if you like, of not repaying evil for evil or reviling for reviling as being the bare minimum. Yeah, it's good if you don't do that. But Peter says you have to go beyond that. But, on the contrary, bless. We're to wholeheartedly go beyond the bare minimum. And we see something similar with these three obligations that we've noted. In each case, you have that word, and. Every time Peter says, this, and, 
and he goes on to do that to, to give that something more. So in speaking of the obligation regarding our speech, the quotation was, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. It's going beyond just keeping your lips from evil. Uh, in speaking of the obligation regarding our, our actions, the quotation was, let him turn away from evil and do good. Go beyond just refraining from evil, positively do good. Go beyond uh, not just not doing evil but positively do good and then in speaking of the obligation regarding our, relation, uh, our relationships the quotation was let him seek peace and pursue it and again you see it's going beyond just seeking to wholeheartedly pursuing peace well that wholeheartedness it stems from the fact that keeping these obligations flows out of a, a changed nature uh, as a result of the new life that we have in Christ. Our natural tendency is, quite often, isn't it, to do, to do the bare minimum. You know, we, we want to be seen to be respectable. We don't want to be looked upon as not being very nice people. Uh, but if it gets really tough, well, we'll, we'll hold back a bit. And what Peter's saying here is, go beyond the bare minimum. Not because we have to, not because there's a, a legal obligation, but because we want to. Because we have new hearts, we have, a, have new desires. So that wholeheartedness stems from the fact that keeping these obligations flows out of a changed nature as a result of a new life in Christ. Well, having considered that the aspiration and that threefold obligation, finally let's uh, look at the, the motivation. Moving on into verse 12, we read, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You see, it begins with that word, for... So it's giving us a, a reason or a motive for controlling our tongues uh, and, for, and for turning away from evil and doing good and seeking and pursuing peace. This is the reason that lies behind that. And did you notice that the Lord is mentioned three times in that verse? It speaks of the eyes of the Lord and the ears of the Lord and the face of the Lord. It almost makes me want to burst into a rendition of head, shoulders, knees and toes. <laughs> you know, and eyes and ears and mouth and nose, head, shoulders, knees and toes, knees and toes. I will spare you that. But every time I've read that, I'm afraid that's what's come into my mind. Uh, but of course, you know, speaking of the eyes of the Lord and the ears of the Lord and the face of the Lord, um, that isn't to suggest that God has eyes or ears or a face. He's, he's almighty God. He doesn't have a body. He's a, he's a spiritual being. You know, at the very least, uh, these body parts are, are being mentioned uh, to show that God sees and hears and interacts with, with, with everything in his creation. It's painting the picture of, of him 
not being distant, not being oblivious, not not being disengaged. He's he's actively and personally involved. Now, how does that provide us with a a motivation to fulfil the obligations we saw? Well, what, what does the verse say about the eyes of the Lord? The point here isn't simply that God sees and knows everything. Now, of course, that's, that's true. But you see, the text specifically says that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. It's saying that although he sees everyone and everything, he watches over the righteous in a special way. His, his favour is upon the righteous. Now, who are the righteous? Well, in this context, it's those who, who live in the righteous way that was outlined in the Christ-like obligations that we considered before. And that, as, as we've seen, is the outworking of having taken refuge in the Lord by coming to faith in Christ and receiving new life from him. Why are the eyes of the Lord on the righteous? Well, as Peter said back in, in chapter 2, verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. We are in that special relationship with him. And it's not like the special relationship that we like, we, we like to think we have with the United States, which often seems to be a very one-sided affair. But this is a, a genuine special relationship. We are his chosen people. We, we matter to him. We are special to him. He loves us so much that he sent Christ to die for us. So we're in that special relationship with him. What does the verse say about the ears of the Lord? Well, it says that his ears are open to their prayer. That is, to the prayer of the righteous. Again, you see, God hears everything, but this is specifically saying that the ears of the Lord are especially receptive to the prayer of the righteous. He wants to hear our prayers. He, he loves to hear our prayers. Why? Again, it's because we're in that special relationship. Chris touched on it this morning, didn't he, when we were talking about prayer? You know, it's a strange relationship in which the people involved don't talk to one another. Um, we're in that special relationship with God. He speaks to us through his word, through the Lord Jesus Christ, and he wants us to speak with him. What does the verse say about the face of the Lord? Well, from what's been said about the, the eyes and ears, you might anticipate that it would say that the face of the Lord shines upon the righteous. But you notice uh, that the text actually says, but the face of the Lord. Uh, and the introduction of that little word, but, shows that a contrast is being made. The, the text says his face is against those who do evil. So uh, a contrast is being made here between the Lord's attitude towards the righteous and his attitude towards the wicked. And by doing that, I think something of, of the wonder 
of the relationship that we have and that we enjoy with him is being highlighted. So what's our motivation? fulfilling those obligations well it's not a sense of of legal duty it's not a a desire to earn his favour we already have his favour he's taken steps to make sure that we have his favour our motivation stems from our, our relationship with him and you can only enter that relationship uh, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ Uh, The good life is having that relationship with the Lord. So may we aspire to that. May may we all work hard at maintaining that relationship by spending time with him, by reading his word, by coming to him in prayer. And may we be motivated to live up to those obligations. Let's... uh, Let's close by singing our final hymn, Through All the Changing Scenes of Life. In trouble and in joy, the praises of my God shall still my heart and tongue employ.